Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and we are 25 chapters into it. And at this point in chapter 26, through the rest of the book, 26 through 28, we're beginning the road to crucifixion and resurrection. So up to this point, the book has been about Jesus's ministry, raising disciples, there's been healings, um, there's been uh, prophecy, there's been teachings. But at this point, things start to change. This event, where we start on chapter 26, takes place probably around Wednesday of Passion Week. So there was the triumphal entry. He walked, came in on the Sunday before the Friday where he was arrested and then crucified. So he comes in on that Sunday. That week, he's teaching. He's in the temple. He's saying all these radical, wild things. They're getting everybody upset. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And people start plotting against him, and we're right around Wednesday on this. So this is the the calendar of where we are. But the beauty of chapter 26, at least for the first 30 verses, is the way that Matthew uses the literary technique that I think uh, is a mirror of the way that God structures his kingdom. And once we see it, and once we become aware of it, it's one of those things you can't unsee, right? It's like you didn't realize how many F-150 trucks there were until you bought one, and now you realize like they're everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? It's something until, like you don't realize it until you see it, and then you see it, it's like, oh man, that's everywhere. My prayer is that as we study Matthew 26 today, that's one of the things that'll happen to you. Because what Matthew does in the literary technique of this chapter is a reflection of God's character in the way that he likes to take beauty and pain and sit them right next to each other on the shelf. Now for some of you, you're like, I know that. Okay, but there's a knowing and then a living because you know it. There's a thing that we know up here and there's a thing that is a reality in here that starts informing the way you see everything else. And if you can start to understand that one of the things that God really loves doing is framing out sin and putting it on the wall right next to grace, once you start understanding that concept, then things like, God, why are you bringing me through this season? That question answers itself. God, why are things so hard? Why do I have to worship you through this tough season? Well, because that's what he likes to do. He likes framing tribulation right next to mercy. He likes putting the frame of this broken, dark world right on the wall next to his love and his redemption. This whole concept of you you are a city set on a hill. Why are we set on a hill? Because in a land of darkness, people from far away need to see that marvelous light shining through you. Are you following me? This concept is all through this entire book. And when you start rooting your belief system and your theology in this idea of the way that God works, 
then a lot of the things that we struggle with in our faith, they just kind of answer themselves and they no longer become an issue. God, why? Oh, because this is your character. Because you love framing out the brokenness of this world right next to the glory of your coming kingdom. Now, why he does that, we'll get into it in a minute, but that is an important principle that we need to kind of start touching on as we get into Matthew 26. This idea of viewing pain and beauty next to each other is really helpful because as humans, we have this way of romanticizing sin and calling it good. We have a way of looking back on our old glory days and forgetting about how bad they were and just kind of romanticizing the good parts about them. We have a way of kind of framing our own lives so that we look in, we're always framed in the best light even though we're not actually the best. But we put it over here in the shadows so that you can't really see the truth on it so that uh, kind of like this, imagine your life almost like a blank wall and you're decorating this wall with the experiences of your life, the things of your life, the things of your like sin, um, pain, things that are, of your life are not great, and you frame all this stuff up and you put it on the wall and you stand back and you look and you're like, oh, I mean, that's kind of pretty. Like, that's not that bad. It's certainly not as bad as this guy's wall over here. It's okay. But then all of a sudden, God comes along and he frames up a little picture of the sacrifice of Jesus next to that, and then you're standing back and you're looking, and you're like, wow, the stuff that I thought was beautiful is not actually that beautiful. The stuff that I thought was good is actually evil. Isaiah touches on this in Isaiah 5, verse 20. He says that there's a generation of people who love calling good evil and evil good. There's a generation of people who love looking at good things and saying, that's bad. And looking at bad things and saying, no, this is good. This is the world we live in right now. Isaiah is prophesying not just to the nation of Israel because the, the root cause is sin and it's carried on all through the generations. And we're experiencing it right now in this world, especially in our culture. We're going through a very interesting time in our American culture where people who have influence are making a regular habit of calling good evil and evil good. Now, there are two dangerous things that happen when you start redefining good as evil and evil as good. The first thing is that we, when we do that, we're actually setting ourselves against God's kingdom. We're saying, I think I would do a better job of sitting in the role of what's good and what's evil. I'm a better judge than you who created the entire universe. And so I'm gonna hop up on the throne and I'm going to start judging for myself because of my experiences and what I've seen and how I feel and through a conversation I had with somebody, we're gonna redefine good to evil and evil to good. That's one dangerous thing. It sets yourself against God whether you intend to or not, when you redefine what he establishes as his ways, it sets you at odds with him. That's the first thing that happens. The other thing that happens is when we start calling evil good and good evil is that we start having a very difficult time seeing the need for salvation. And this is not just in our own life, this is culture-wide. Because if I have said 
that evil is good, why do I need saving from something that's good? Do you see the danger in this? If I have allowed some YouTube influencer who holds a certain power in culture because of how many followers he has to tell me how to think about a specific issue when I have already been told by the word of God how to think about those specific issues, I am setting myself against him and I'm now putting myself in a situation where it is incredibly difficult for me to even see the need why I need to be saved from anything. Because now the things that he says are evil, I've said are good, and I don't need saving from anything that is good. When all evil is good and all good is evil, then we don't need a savior and we don't need God at all. If all evil is good and all good is evil, then then we can start deconstructing this thing called Christianity because it's oppressive because it's controlled by a certain demographic of people and it was put in place to control those under them. Jesus is clear about what he's teaching his disciples. He got on his knees and the creator of the universe washed their feet. It's not about control, but a culture who wants to set themselves against God wants to redefine that. They wanna tear the stuff down with no intention of what's gonna be built on it, the main goal is we just need to destroy it. Whatever's built after it, we'll figure that out later. But this is bad. This thing that's good, no, it's not good anymore. It's evil, we need to deconstruct this, we need to, we need to plow it over, and we need to have some more conversations about some things. It is unbelievably dangerous to say to a holy God, you didn't know what you were doing. And to not just an individual say it, an entire generation of people to say it. So, the world is upside down. Some people want it that way. Some people are excited that the world is upside down. Some people have been planning and plotting for many years to simply flip the tables because they want things upside down. They enjoy the chaos because they like setting themselves against God but God has a plan. In a world where everything is upside down and people like calling good evil and evil's good, how do you have a reference point for what true good is? How, what do you do in a world where up is down and down is up? Well, Matthew 26 shows us, through the way he arranges this chapter, a very helpful way for us to live as believers and continue to evangelize and declare the glory of the Lord in a world who doesn't think they need God at all. And it comes down to this principle, the idea of being able to frame out what the world has said is good right next to the things that are truly good from God's kingdom. Because you can sit in a cave with a flashlight that is a thousand lumens and have a conversation all day long about how bright that flashlight is, but that flashlight does not hold a candle the moment you walk outside that cave and you stare at the sun. Do you follow? So our lives should be a wall that includes both a framing of sin and darkness that the world would call as good and also the beauty of his redemption and grace and this thing called forgiveness. Have you noticed that forgiveness 
has been something that the culture has tried to essentially remove from the fabric of who we are? Have you noticed that? Forgiveness is not a thing that is popular anymore. What is popular is we're gonna make you disappear. You said something or did something 20 years ago we don't like, so we're gonna cancel you. We're gonna make you disappear. Guys, that is completely contrary to the way that we have been taught to think as Christians. As Christians, in our DNA is this thing called forgiveness. Why? Because it is the one thing that was done to us when Christ rose from the dead. He said, you had a debt that was too much for you to pay, and I'm going to cancel it out. I'll pay it for you. I will forgive that debt. And now you are supposed to go into the culture and be agents of that forgiveness too. Go and be good stewards of it. And the world said, you know what? We're going to call forgiveness evil and we're gonna go on the offensive and we're going to erase it. And now it started infiltrating our churches to the point where we can't seem to forgive each other. We hold grudges and we split churches because we can't get the foundation of what he told us we're supposed to be doing. We can't get that right. Why? Because we are being conformed into the image of this world, not conformed into the image of Christ like a bowl of jello, right, that is poured into a mold and then set into the fridge after a period of time, it kind of creates that shape. We are pouring ourselves into the culture of this world, telling people who do not want anything to do with God, please teach me how to think about things like sexuality and race. Please inform me how to think about money and my time and how to raise my children. Guys, we've got a mold. The Lord told us how we're supposed to think about this stuff, but we're outsourcing it to people who don't know what they're talking about and are really good at one thing, calling good evil and evil good. So how are we supposed to work? How are we supposed to reconcile? How are we supposed to live in this world? We're supposed to follow the pattern that Matthew shows us in 26. This idea that we're going to display God's redemptive work next to the reality of who we are so the world can truly see how beautiful it is. Now the Bible word for what I'm saying here is testimony. It is the framing up of what you came from and what he brought you to so that all the world can see. And I've seen a pandemic in our churches where we've lost the idea of being able to articulate our testimony. It's the reason why our church has this separate podcast um, where we interview people uh, on, it's called Red Hill Stories. We interview people and we ask them to share their testimony. Because one of the fundamental things I feel like we're losing as a church is our ability to be able to articulate our testimony. I can't tell you what God brought me from because I've redefined according to the world standards what good and evil is and I don't know that he actually brought me from anything because the stuff I used to think was evil is now good and I don't know what he saved me from. And so I can't articulate what he saved me to because I don't know that I actually saved, got saved out of anything. It's a problem. We're sitting around having conversations on Sunday morning and listening to sermons that are not rooted in the Word of God. We're reading books that are not rooted in the Word of God. We're completely starved of His words and we're walking around acting like we are educated 
and we are equipped for the things that are coming our way. We're not. We are seriously in trouble. And the reason why I say that is because this stuff is coming in like a flood. It's not stopping, and we're still, as a whole, churches are still, as a whole, having conversations about how do we get more people in the door? Man, this pandemic really hit us. It hit us financially. It hit us with attendance-wise. How do we get people back? That's the wrong conversation. The conversation is not how do we get more people in the door. The conversation is how do we equip you for the work of ministry so we can send you out because you will be far more effective in every place you are at throughout the week than just inviting all of your lost friends here on Sunday morning and asking me to do the heavy lifting of teaching and articulating the gospel to them. You have far more impact around your dinner table when you invite your neighbor over than I will ever have if you, by, by, by there's any stretch of imagination, you get them to come in here and sit on a Sunday morning and listen to me. You have far more impact when you take somebody out to lunch or when you're working alongside somebody at work than I will ever have. And so if we're going to do this correctly, we're going to have to follow his pattern, his plan, and not our church plan that we've structured over the last hundred years where it says, come and see. Look, I got bad news for you, but the, the world doesn't care anything about our programs. They don't care that we have trunk or treat. They don't care. They don't care that we have a fall festival. They don't care that we have all these great things that you can come and see. They don't care that we have great music. They don't care that we have friendly faces and people outside holding signs saying, we're so glad you're here. They don't care. You know why they don't care? Because there's a better version of of that out in the world. You know what's not out in the world? The Word of God. Believers who have been profoundly transformed by this on the inside, that it is like a fire shot up in their bones, and you can see on their wall a frame of who they used to be and who they are now, and they're walking in forgiveness. That's what the world doesn't have, and we've lost it, and it's our responsibility to find what he told us to do and do it. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 1. So Matthew chapter 26, verse one, it says this. It says, when Jesus finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now that's a pause there because he stops having a conversation with his disciples. And then Matthew switches in verse three, he changes scenery. So you've got Jesus over here as disciples, and if you're watching the show, it's like the camera pans out and then it zooms in on this palace owned by a guy named Caiaphas. He's a chief priest. This is verse three. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, look, not during the feast, let there be an uproar among the people. All right, so they knew the people wouldn't like what they were about to do. In these first five verses, we have the first contrast that I'm talking about. You got this man named Caiaphas, 
and he has organized all of the Jewish leaders, the priests, the elders, the high priests, the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, all of these people who typically cannot get along have all now rallied together in the same palace because they have a common enemy. Now, what do we know about Caiaphas? Caiaphas was the high priest over Israel. In the traditional view of Israel, all throughout, um, right up to before the exile, when they were taken away to Babylon, this idea of a high priest, Aaron was the first high priest, the high priest position was a lifetime appointment. When you assumed the role of the high priest, you had it until you died. But when they returned from exile and they started rebuilding and they started establishing all these cultures and norms again, uh, Alexander the Great came in, there was this, this, this great uh, Greek culture uprising, there was some revolt against that, but eventually the Romans came in and they basically overtook Israel and they started establishing some rules. And one of the first rules they wanted was they didn't want this power play over time of the same leader gathering support for people. So one of, one of the things that Rome did when they came in is they said, from now on, you have to have a new high priest every year. We're mandating that. You don't have a choice about it. You want to live under a rule, we're going to give you some freedoms, but there's some things you got to follow. And that, one of those things is you got to have a new high priest every year. But the interesting thing about Caiaphas is that he held this position for 18 years. Now, in a culture where the high priest was supposed to be different every year, how do you suppose a man like Caiaphas was able to hold that position for 18 years? is because money, but because that dude knew how to play politics. What are the politics at the time? Look, you can, you can play temple all day long. You can make as many sacrifices as you want. We just don't want any uprisings. If there's peace, we'll turn a blind eye to what you're doing. We don't really care. We don't even believe in your God. So do whatever you want as long as there's not trouble. So Caiaphas was really good about making sure there was no trouble for Rome. But now you've got this guy named Jesus coming in and everyone's saying, he's the king, he's the king, he's the king. Well, what happens to the Roman culture when somebody starts going around and people start calling him king? Well, you've got a problem on your hands, don't you? Because there's only one king and his name is, it, it's Caesar. You, you can't overthrow the king. There's no other king, there's just him. And so Caiaphas, thinking this was a good thing, arranged all the leadership and said, look, for the good of Israel, we need to get rid of this guy. The problem is the guy they're talking about, it's God. So I want the weight of this to kind of set in for a minute. Okay, in Jerusalem, in this palace, you have a group of leaders plotting murder. And in their plotting, they're essentially calling what is evil, murder, good. This is a good thing because we want to avoid an uproar. Now, Jerusalem in the city typically had around 30,000 people living in the city at any given time. But when Passover came in, this was a huge event for Jewish people. And so people from all over the country would come in and the population of that city would jump to, some theologians said, as high as 180,000 people. Some theologians said that there, uh, according to Josephus, there were years where it was almost a million people in this tiny little city coming together for Passover. Now, you've got this guy named Jesus who's been going all around. What is he doing? He's healing the broken. 
He's restoring sight to the blind. He's taking the people who have got crippled legs and he's giving them new legs and they're walking around and they're jumping and they're singing. Now what do you think those people who are on the outskirts, and there's a lot of them, because you can only have so many people with wealth. In this culture, it was good for the majority of the people to live in poverty. There's no middle class here. So when the majority of the people see Jesus as their king, and all of them have now come to Jerusalem for Passover, can you see the powder keg that's about to happen? And so Caiaphas says, look, I don't want to choose murder. That's, that's an evil thing. The Bible's pretty clear on not murdering people, but for the good of our people, we're going to have to do this thing. But here's the other thing. This situation, this moment is recounted also in John 11. We read John together, I think it was not last year, but the year before. And in John chapter 11, verse 55, we're told that in this moment, when they're gathering together plotting, they're also doing something else. They're purifying themselves for the Passover. They're following ritual law and they're cleansing themselves in order to get ready for Passover. So they're performing all of these ritual laws of Moses and as they're performing these ritual laws of Moses that God gave them, they're actually plotting against God. Can you see the tension that Matthew is building here? All right, now just pause for a moment. That's one thing happening over here in this palace. Let's go to verse six. It says, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, that's important. The religious elite are in a palace and God is in the home of a leper. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, what were they? They were indignant, saying, why this waste? for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus was aware of this and said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with me, but you, you will not always have me. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare for my burial. She sees something that none of you see. My disciples, my man, my, my boys, you, you're blind, you don't see it, but she sees it. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then one of the disciples, one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. All right, so now Matthew's brought us to a new residence. The camera zooms out of the palace, and it zooms back in on this home of Simon the leper. And in this home, Jesus is eating with a family. Now, John 12 tells us that this meal immediately followed something miraculous. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. I was doing some interesting reading, and there is a theory running around there that, that um, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and they went back to this home, and uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were there, um, they went back to the house of Simon the leper. It is a possibility that Simon the leper might have been Mary and Martha and Lazarus' dad. 
or it might have been Mary's husband. We're not sure who Simon the leper is, but he is definitely connected to these three people in some way. And there is a very high chance that he was referred to as Simon the leper, not because he was a leper, but because he used to be a leper and Jesus healed him. Now, all of that is just hypothetical, and I think it's interesting, and we'll just toss it around so we can have a fun cup of coffee and talk about it later. The point is, is that Jesus, while the religious leaders are over here in a palace plotting, Jesus is in a home eating a meal with a family. That should inform a lot about the way that we should structure our Christian lives and how we think about things like wealth and what we spend it on. Because Jesus spent most of his time not in pretty palaces, in broken homes with lepers and women who thought it was a good idea to anoint his head and his feet with oil. So, while the religious leaders are plotting, one woman is worshiping. Now this contrast is incredibly powerful because what it's doing is it's framing the deeds of the righteous, the ones who thought that they were holy, the, the, the self-righteous churchgoers. It frames their deeds, it exposes their motivations because it takes their self-righteousness and it frames it on the wall right next to Mary bending down and anointing Jesus with oil. So you take all of your religious activities and you put them up and you just sit back and say, look at what I've done for the Lord. And then you hang a picture right next to it of something that the Lord has done for you. And then all of a sudden, all the things you've done for the Lord, they seem like, like those orange circus peanuts that you buy at the gas station. Like no one wants those things, those are nasty. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody's like, I like those things. All right. But the idea being that we could argue our point and say, man, this thing that's evil, no, it's good because it's for good intentions. We, this is, you know, it's the, it's the lesser of two evils. Look, the lesser of two evils is still evil. And so you can't frame that hanging on the wall and stand back and say, man, what I did for God without the Lord putting, putting right next to that picture on the wall what he's done for you and then making you feel about this big. And that's what Matthew's doing with this story. But that's not the last contrast. There's another contrast in this room. There's Mary and the religious leaders, but then there's the disciples in the room. There's the disciples in the room against Mary. The disciples are taking issue with Mary and they're labeling Mary's worship a waste. They're essentially calling what was good evil. So you've got these religious elite who are calling evil good, and you've got the disciples saying, well, that was a waste. You know how many mouths we could feed with that? Now, John tells us that the specific disciple who said that was Judas, but Matthew frames it out like this was the attitude of most of the disciples in the room. Judas was just the one who said it, but most of the disciples were thinking it, and Jesus responds to all of them in correction because her act of worship wasn't about practical use, it was about an overflow of something profound that she believed in her heart. But that's not the last contrast, there's another contrast and that is with this guy named Judas. So you've got the religious elite and then Mary, and then you've got the disciples and Mary, and then you've got Judas. And what we're seeing, what Matthew is painting here is these series of concentric circles 
that on the outside are all of these things that we would argue, well, it's evil, but it's good, it's good, it's evil, we're redefining these things. But the closer you get in, all of it in the middle, the center focus is this act of Mary that we're told by Jesus will be talked about in her memory forever. You've got Judas who betrays Jesus and you've got Mary who's worshiping Jesus. Mary worshiping Jesus is right in the middle of all of the garbage surrounding Jesus. It's just like a nasty sandwich. You've got religious leaders and you've got failed disciples and Judas and sandwiched right in the middle is sweet Mary worshiping Jesus. Now why is that important? Because in your life, that's exactly how your worship should look. You're not gonna, look, somebody told you along the way that when you come to Jesus, he's gonna take away all your problems. He's gonna give you your best life right now. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's, it's gonna be amazing. All you gotta do is surrender. All you gotta do is follow him and everything's gonna be great. That's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. That's a lie. That's not true. What's true is your pain won't be taken away. Your pain will be given purpose. Your dark seasons won't go away. You're promised somebody will walk through them with you. Now you are promised that on the other side of eternity, all that stuff will be washed away. Every tear, gone. But not right now. Because through that transformation, walking through those valleys brings a transformation in your soul that can't be brought any other way. So you're not gonna get that stuff removed from you. You're gonna get somebody to walk through it with you and his name is Jesus. And that's the beauty of it. Because what we see here is that when we frame the gross next to the beauty of God's kingdom, all of a sudden, all of the lies we tell ourselves about how good the gross is are exposed. But not just that, we're keenly aware of the transformation that needs to take place in our heart because we've been thinking, no, 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 I'm pretty good until he hangs that picture of Mary worshiping next to you and you're like, wow, I completely missed it. I made it about stuff that it didn't need to be made about. And now the word of God, this moment, it puts me in my place because in the midst of all of the garbage surrounding this night, you've got one girl who sees it right. I'm not her. I'm the disciple standing back thinking we could have done something with that. I'm the religious leaders over here plotting and trying to get my way and, and, and arguing for self-preservation. I'm not regularly on my knees pouring out the most expensive, valuable things in my heart onto Jesus because he is infinitely more valuable than anything in my life that I think is valuable. And that's why this is good because this story helps us move past the shallow expressions of our religion. This story gets us to a place where we are accurately starting to model God's kingdom to the world because now I see who I truly am and how much I need to change. You ever wonder why Paul, who wrote two thirds of the New Testament, had the audacity to call himself the chief of sinners? Like, dude, you did a lot. We're all in this room now because you heard some guy from Macedonia say, come on over and you preach the gospel. That's why most of us are in this room because the gospel spread. I don't know that you're the chief of sinners, but there's something that happens the closer you get to God. 
you start realizing how dark your heart actually is. That's why Moses couldn't go into the promised land, because he struck a rock. We're over here going, wow, Moses, I mean, come on, God, like he hit a rock. But God's like, no, 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 but you don't get to be that close to me and act out against my people in anger. I'll tolerate it in those folks, but I don't tolerate it in you because the closer you come as I beckon you, the more you change and the less excuses you have, the more you're held accountable for. And I apologize, but now that you've heard this, you're all accountable for it. (laughs) Now there's one final contrast I wanna show you. It's in verse 17. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city. A certain man there is gonna be there and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12 And as they were eating the Passover meal, he said to them, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I? It's interesting that they didn't know who it was, but they all started arguing, it's not gonna be me. And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me the son of man goes as is written of him, but but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And Judas, who was about to betray him, answered, uh, is it I, Rabbi? Uh, is it me, Jesus? And he says, yeah, you said so. But at that moment, no one really understood what was going on. And then verse 26, it says, after they were finished eating, after that conversation, after the eating the Passover meal, Jesus took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's always struck me odd that the disciples weren't sitting around going, Jesus, this is really weird. Will you stop talking about us eating your flesh and drinking your blood? This is weird. It's almost like they understood something that we don't get. And I think the thing that we don't get is the impact of what the Passover meal actually was. So for a minute, I just wanna roll this out to you. This is the last contrast I wanna talk about today. At the Last Supper, they're having the Passover meal. Now the Passover was a festival that lasted seven days. And the Passover was essentially a reminder of what God did in the life of Israel during the Exodus. 
So if you go back and read the book of Exodus, that's essentially how the Passover came about. And you guys maybe were familiar with the story. This involves Moses, it involves Egypt, uh, taking it, they, they have Israel uh, enslaved for almost 400 years. The people start crying out, they wanna be saved. God raises up Moses and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And he says, okay, but then not really. And it's, it, it kicks off this entire process through the book of Exodus of God saying, I'm gonna punish you for not letting my people go. And he starts releasing these plagues on the nation of Egypt. Well, it goes like plague one, plague two, plague three, and it's like plague six, plague seven. And, and Pharaoh keeps saying like, all right, I'll let him go. And then he immediately changes his mind. Well, we get to plague nine, and it's like, so let you go. God tells Moses, look, I'm gonna give one final plague and this is gonna be it. The 10th and final plague was interesting because what it was, God said, I'm gonna kill the firstborn in the entire city. I want that to set in just for a second because we're not just talking about the firstborn of like people. I'm talking about the firstborn of animals too. So in your home right now, just real quick, raise your hand if you were a firstborn in your family. All of you are gone. Firstborn among your animals, gone. And God says, this is how I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna come in the middle of the night and I'm gonna, I'm gonna remove the life from the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, but I'm gonna keep a covenant with my people. If you, now follow me here, if you take a lamb and you kill it, and then you cook it, and then you eat the lamb, and you take its blood and smear it over your doorposts, then as I'm coming through Egypt to remove the life of the firstborn, I will look down on your home and if I see that blood, I will pass over your home and not pronounce judgment there. I will not kill the firstborn. And so by faith, Israel had to make a decision. Do I believe that God will do what he says he will do without any evidence? Do I just trust him or do I ignore him and just play the lottery and see what happens? No, they took the lamb, they killed the lamb, they smeared the blood on the doorposts, and they sat there and ate the lamb. They ate the meal. They ate with their shoes on with the expectancy that God was gonna save them. Now this event in the life of Israel has been the pinnacle of their existence because they would not be a free people, they would not be a nation without this event because from this event, they were set free, they were brought to the mountain and God said, you are my people. This is the only nation in the history of the world that became a nation because God said they were a nation. Everybody else got together and drew up a constitution or put together a flag or a, one person with the biggest sword said we're now a nation. But this is the one people group in the history of the world where God said, no, you're my people because I say you are my people. Without this event, there is no Israel. And now Jesus is sitting around the table with his disciples. And on this night, as they're celebrating the Passover lamb, the fullness of that one event that really was just a foreshadow starts becoming apparent in the lives of the disciples and us. Because when Jesus says, I want you to eat my body, what he's saying is I am the Passover lamb. I'm gonna shed my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And if you allow my heart to be the heart or the blood, if you allow my blood to be the blood over the doorpost of your heart, 
then the Lord is gonna pass over you and not pronounce his judgment on you because I'm gonna take that judgment for you. I want you to ingest deep inside of you the fullness of what I'm doing. So drink this wine like it's my blood and eat this bread like it's my flesh. Because at this moment, the fullness of this comparison of the Passover that's been hanging on the wall of every Jew for their entire life has now fully been realized because right next to it is a beautiful picture of communion and the reality of what God did, not just in one nation, but the entire world has fully been realized in this moment because whoever partakes of the covenant, God will pass over them. God is framing the beauty of Passover and communion right next to the betrayal of Judas. That's the last comparison I want you to see. That in the middle of Jesus having the most intimate moment with his disciples, saying, look, for thousands of years, I'm the Passover the lamb. I'm the one that you've all been waiting for. You're not gonna need to slaughter a lamb every year just to cover your sins. My blood is enough. In that moment, there's one person at the table who's saying, I'm gonna betray you. And so the beauty of forgiveness is framed right on the wall next to betrayal. I started today saying, I hope that you can see this literary technique that Matthew makes clear, but is really only a reflection of God's character and the way he does things, and that is this idea of contrasts and testimonies. This chapter is a wonderful expression of God's mercy and his grace framed right alongside the darkness and the brokenness of this world. And until these two opposing things hang on the wall next to each other, we don't really get a full understanding of how much we need salvation and how much this world needs transformation. Because if we keep going down the path we've been going, then there will be nothing that we need forgiveness for because we have redefined everything as evil that is now good. And we have completely written out the need for God. And woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So my prayer today from Matthew 26 is that we embrace the contrast that we see here and we start making a conscious effort to see it as a way to frame our lives. That's what I want from us. I want you to see this thing so that now you can start seeing it everywhere. And I'm telling you, when you read the word of God, you're gonna see this everywhere. You're gonna see God regularly contrasting the wickedness against his righteousness, our unfaithfulness against his faithfulness. And when you do that, you cannot, you cannot argue effectively that any of our unrighteousness is kind of like righteousness. Our evil is kind of good. There's no leg to stand on. All you have is his righteousness and you will measure up to it or you will not measure up to it. And so my desire as a people is from now on as we're reading the word of God, we're aware of these contrasts in here, but we're also aware of the contrasts in our own lives so that we as a people can stop walking around whimpering and complaining, woe is me, I'm not sure why this is happening. The word of God tells you why this is happening. It is happening so that he can make you a royal priesthood, a chosen people, set apart for his purposes, not yours, so that the glory of his kingdom can be spread throughout all of the earth, amen? Let's pray.
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.